We are live. <clears throat> Whoever's watching with us today, taking your lunchtime, we welcome you, those here in the building. We have stepped into fall, wintertime, which is my favorite season, is right around the corner. I'm a weirdo. I like winter the best. <laughs> so if you have your Bibles, let's go to Exodus chapter 28. We've been talking about the high priest, and we'll talk about him a little bit more today and see what else we can get into. <laughs> Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your love and mercy. Thank you for all those who've taken time to just come and be under your word. We know that your word has, is the height of everything. You've magnified your word above your name. And so we, we celebrate your word and we honor your word and we believe and trust your word. And we know that everything else will fade away except for your word. And so help us to build our lives on that. Take comfort from that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so let's pick up in verse 22, talking about the high priest. I showed this picture last week of him. Uh, just a little rendering of the high priest and his garments. Um, we talked about a lot of that last week. It says, uh, you, chapter 28, verse 22. 28, verse 22. Uh, you shall make change for the breastplate at the end and braided cords of pure gold. You shall make two rings of gold for the breastplate. And put two rings of the two ends of the breastplate. Then you shall put on the two braided chains of gold on the two rings that are on the ends of the breastplate. And other two ends of the two braided chains you shall fasten to the two settings and put them on the shoulder straps, the ephod in, in the front. So he's wearing, he's bearing these stones that we talked about last week. He's bearing the children of Israel on his heart which is typifying of who God is toward us. God did not spare any expense. Of course, nothing's expensive to him. He owns it all. <laughs> so uh, he asked them to do things according to the pattern in heaven with the tabernacle. And also, he's given the instructions on how to make the garments, the curtain, everything uh, is the top of the line. And we went through a phase, right? We went through a phase with the church about, uh, because we, we have gotten real casual in our culture. If you, if you watch some or see some photographs from 30s and 40s, you know, when a man went out in public, he looked good. You know, he was, uh, so we've come, and I'm not saying whether that's right or wrong, but I think that attitude also came in the church. And then people felt like the church was only after their money. And then they, you know, you got into the, and I'm sure there are ministries like that. We all know that's true. But you got into this people being offended because God's house looked good or it was the best looking place in town. But why shouldn't it be? If we love him, why shouldn't his house be nicer than ours? So somewhere along the line, that all, all that stuff started clashing, right? And you've got this group that says, oh, let's just have church in a gymnasium. And I understand all that, right? I mean, there's times and seasons for everything. And so, but somehow we clashed over that. And I think the fallout from that 
no matter who was right or wrong, was the same attitude that Israel fell into in Malachi. We'll just bring you our leftovers. You be happy. Here, God. Here's what we had left. Right. And so God got in there, and I know when you say Malachi, all some people hear is tithing, which there's a big verse in there for that, obviously. A good verse, actually, not a bad one. But the whole theme of that book is why God's people got in a position where they were just bringing him leftovers. Not first fruits, not what was first. They just said, ah, God will be okay with that. He's God. He don't really need our stuff. And so they fell into that habit. And I really, everybody says what the preacher thinks. I really think that's what happened with Cain. I think Cain was the keeper of the ground, or the keeper of the ground, Abel's keeper of sheep. And we can deduct, and if you read Jewish uh, history, you can figure out that sacrifice, and the Bible plainly tells this, was the way for atonement. God showed him the picture of that right off the bat when he clothed Adam and Eve with the animal skins because we know there had been a sacrifice for that to happen. So somewhere along the way, because Cain kept raised apples and oranges, let's say, and Abel's a sheep, Cain should have probably went to Abel and said, I've got to go up here before the Lord, so I want to trade you, barter, whatever he raised to give... For whatever reason, he just thought God ought to be happy with what he brought him. And I think that's the kind of attitude that kind of come into the church after we had all those battles. You know, why should the church have a golden cross on the wall when people are starving three streets over? You know, they tried that with Jesus once, didn't they? They said, why did he let this woman dump all that on him? And most theologians agree that that was probably represented a whole year's worth of wages. So she dumped, and, and, and of course the thief is over there saying, we should have sold that, right? And give it to the poor because he was going to skim off the top, right? And Jesus gave an interesting statement. He, Jesus almost appears stern, more stern than most of us would be in certain situations, don't he? He said, you got to pour with you always. You can make a hot dog dinner tomorrow, but right now, this is what should be going on. I'm here. She knows who I am. She's honoring that. And you, when you see Jesus, now Jesus w could not run a good government because he's not a handout guy. He said, uh, when I come back, What? You buried yours, I'm taking yours, even though you just got one and giving it to the guy with the most because he done something with his. Run that through Washington, D.C. and see how it goes. Uh, Jesus came into the house, flipped the tables over. So he's got a little bit more stern attitude about something. We feel if... And I, I'm older, so I don't feel as awkward about this as I used to. <laughs> but we feel awkward when some of the advice we should give somebody is, you ought to go get a job. <laughs> you should go get a job. 
What's wrong? You got too much time on your hands. We feel awkward about that, like we're putting, persecuting them or something like that. But that's not how we should feel. Sometimes that's the best advice we could give somebody, right? You ought to go get a job. And uh, so we have, uh, we've created an awkward environment a lot of times because you have these people who say, yeah, we want to give God our best, and you have these people, well, that's too extravagant, and that battle took place several years ago inside the church, and we're left with the fallout from that of, of, of a casual attitude toward God. And that's, that's kind of what, that's why the prophet did, said what he said in Malachi, or if you're Italian, Malachi, whatever. So he says... Uh, He's given him, and this is pretty extravagant, you know. He's using gold on everything. He's, they, these uh, guys here that God gifted, the Bible says God gifted them, they beat gold so fine that they were able to sew with it. They made thread out of it because that's how God put his stuff together. And he says, you make these two rings of gold, you're carrying them on his heart. This breastplate, in verse 28, they shall bind the breastplate by means of its rings and rings of ephod using a blue cord and then above it intricately woven band of the ephod so that the breastplate does not come loose from the ephod. So it's right here on the high priest's heart who is a picture of Christ to come, right? Uh, that we would be on his heart. Uh, so Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate of judgment over his heart. And he goes into the holy place as a memorial before the Lord continually. And so that, what we just passed through here, Yom Kippur, was one of those days when the high priest would go in bearing the sins and the atonement, seeking the atonement. And he says, uh, he goes into the holy place as a memorial before the Lord continually. And you shall put in the breastplate of a judgment, a Urim and the Thummim. And they shall be over Aaron's heart as he goes before the Lord. So Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. So this high priest had to be right with God. He had to keep himself right. He was bearing as a type and a shadow, right? He's not the Christ. He's a picture of things to come. And he's going in. Now, we don't know a whole lot about the Urim Thummim, but... Uh, Thuman, this Urim and Thuman is a mystery. What I have learned, as little as I have learned, is that there was some kind of way on the temple floor that they would cast these stones and after praying, obviously, and seeking God, and it would spell out to them God's will. Again, people who couldn't read or write, right? I mean, this is crazy how we think about things back in the day. So, they, you see where you can see how the Ouija board mimicked that to some degree. The Ouija board that's been occultic, very demonic uh, play on that over the years. Uh, how that it's used to spell out certain things they say, and they they invoke you know, satanic uh, demons in that particular. If they want to call it a game, whatever they call it, uh, and. You know, I've had some uh, involvement with people who've used those and had very traumatic experiences from them because basically they're just invoking demonic presence or activity into their lives. And, and so it's what the devil does, whatever God uses, he, he tries to distort it and use it for evil. Now, 
uh, and the Bible tells us to not get involved in that kind of stuff, cultic practices and witchcraft and stuff like that. So what we tend to forget is there is a spiritual world on the dark side. And I'm not saying you and I tend to forget that, but a lot of the church world don't consider it. There is demonic activity going on like there's angelic activity going on on our side. And these angels are ministering spirits to those who are heirs of salvation, Hebrews says. And then Psalm 103 also talks about them ministering. And it says in Psalm 103, they hearken to the voice of God's word. So it's not just God's voice, but it's the voice of his word. So that's why the word is so important to us. If we speak God's word, angels move on that. They don't move on our whining and crying and complaining. They move on God's word. So that's why Peter, I believe it said, speak. When we speak, we should speak as the oracles of God. And so that's the advice we need to give people is God's word most of the time. And if you, if you give them a piece of advice that's from you, make sure they understand that. That it's coming from a fallible human. <laughs> it's not... God's word. It may be good advice from time to time. There's things you've learned, right? But just make sure you're distinguishing between what you think versus maybe what God says. So God's brought these, uh, this type and shadow together. And he says, you shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. They shall, there shall be an opening for the, his head in the middle of it. Of course, blue, we talked about that last week, grace and uh, it shall have a woven binding all around its opening like the opening of the coat of mail so that it does not tear and upon its hem you shall make the pomegranates of blue, purple and scarlet all around the hem the bells of gold between them all around we mentioned that last week about how there's a pomegranate and a bell and that these bells would just be a clanging symbol as Paul talks about in the New Testament uh, if the fruit wasn't between it and then when you read uh, Romans 12 where the gifts are at, and then you go to 1 Corinthians 12 where the manifestations are at, there's a difference between a manifestation and a gift. A gift is something you carry with you that you are a steward over. God has gifted all of us. A manifestation is when the Holy Spirit decides to use you and manifest himself through you in a certain situation. And if you read on down in 1 Corinthians 12 there, it says, as he wills, not as we will. When you read through those manifestations. Then right after the manifestations, you have the love chapter, right? And then Paul goes into our service there in chapter 13 and even supernatural situations and says, none of that's any good if you don't have love. So when you get... To this high priest, he's a type and a shadow of the work of the Spirit and also the work of Christ. So, you know, if our lives don't match up with what we're doing or whatever, then it won't be effective in ministry. And so that's the balance of that, right? A bell, a pomegranate, a bell, a pomegranate. You want to have... And then when you read about the fruit out there in Galatians chapter 5, you, you, there's one fruit with nine components. So it's not like, I think sometimes we can excuse ourselves and say, well, most of the fruit on my tree is good. 
even though I've, I'm still not very long-suffering or whatever. Uh, but that's not how it works. You don't have a little apple over here that's a bad one and the other eight are good. You got a bad spot in all your apples. If, if we don't allow the Holy Spirit to perfect us. Now, when you go back to the book of Psalms, they said, taste and see that the Lord is good. How do they do that? How does the world out there do that? By plucking fruit off our tree. That's how they taste and see that the Lord is good. And if you've got a worm in all your fruit, it's going to be bad. And <laughs> uh, My brother got the peaches before I did when we were younger, and I'm glad he did because he took a big hunk out of one, and there was half a worm left in the peach. And, of course, I had a big time with that. <laughs> I was glad he was the... He, I was glad he beat me to the punch that day. <laughs> so, but we want God to perfect us. And we want to be real with ourselves. You know, that we can look in the mirror and let God evaluate us. And let the Holy Spirit speak into our lives. Uh, and get the darkness out of us. That's a journey we're on, right? Where the Holy Spirit's trying to flood all the regions of our lives so that uh, we don't have 30 corridors and he gets 27 of them and we keep the other three and reserve them to ourselves. But that's, as, I, as you've heard me say, there's so much magnificent stuff about the Holy Spirit. In fact, and then the Holy Spirit, he don't even want to speak of himself. He wants to direct everything to Jesus Christ. He's kind of behind the scenes. But the number one thing the Holy Spirit needs to do or desires to do is to conquer you and me. When he conquers us, then he has a vessel that he can use. And my mother shared this with me years ago when I was a young man, young boy. I wasn't married or anything, but she was talking to me. We were talking about spiritual things and she said, just remember, if you go through a cafeteria line, that was back when they still had a lot of cafeterias, you know, you ate at when you're on the road. She said, what, what do you do if you go through the cafeteria line and pick, pick up a fork or a spoon that's still got food on it? I said, I'll lay it down and find one that's not got food on it. She said, well, just remember that in your spiritual journey. God's not interested in using a fork that's dirty. Yeah. And so I've carried that with me. That was before I was even in the ministry. You know, she, we were having a conversation one day. You and I, we want God to do stuff we wouldn't do. You know, how many, how many times have you went through a cafeteria line and said, I'm not using that spoon, I'm not using that fork? Or go to a buffet and set that plate off to the side. You want it clean, right? You don't want to eat from the last guy that was over licking the plate, you know. So she handed that off to me at a year early age. I'm glad she did. You know, it's a, uh, just a subtle lesson about uh, keeping yourself open to the Holy Spirit and letting him keep you clean and do... And I, I saw something. Let me hold, hold your spot there and let's go over to 1 John because I, I want you to hear what he said here. I think sometimes we get that ultimate truth that gets handed around the church world, rightfully so. But then we sometimes we'll 
not see what the next line is conveying to us. Uh, and I thought this was, this happened to me uh, back when I was looking at this one day. And, and the second thing <laughs> jumped out at me. Uh, he, when we talk about where it says, 1 John, he talks about, um, let's go to verse 5. 1 John chapter 1 verse 5. 1 John chapter 1 verse 5. We'll go back to Exodus here in a moment. It says, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Zero. None. Nada. If we say we have fellowship with him, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That is an ongoing process. And I, when I saw that, I thought, wow, how amazing is that? That as we're committed to walking in the light, there's a constant cleansing going on inside of us. And that, that was another phase of revelation, I thought, when I saw that back when, that, hey, we love to be forgiven of our sins, but we see that cleansing as like, oh, I just got a bath. I'm better now. But there's an ongoing cleansing that can take place in our lives as we have this commitment to walking in the light. And that's our commitment to walking in the light brings us to greater levels of fellowship. I've said this a lot. And I'd say it in front of my own family. I don't care. Uh, spiritual ties are stronger than blood ties. Because you and I can fellowship on a higher level. There's a lot of people in my family tree that I can't fellowship on the same level I have with many of you in this fellowship because they don't know Christ. They don't walk with Christ. We can't get up where, we, where you and I can get up because we, we know Christ. So spiritual ties have stronger bonds than, than blood ties. Uh, and they take us into another realm, a dimension that you can't get there with just blood ties. And, and you can grow in those relationships. In fact, that's what you do with a spouse, right? Hopefully your spouse ain't your sister physically, <laughs> right? But you, you, you bond, right? Because that relationship. So we have that. And then he says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in, in us. So I like the idea of a constant cleansing. I don't want to ever get away from the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And in our marriage retreat last week, that verse really came alive. And when the Holy Spirit showed up Friday night, it came alive, and if, if you would have been there, you would have seen husbands laying their hands on their wives 
and speaking into their lives and praying. And then the same from the, I mean, the Holy Spirit and the, the spirit of compassion and weeping that came over us in that hotel uh, conference room. It was a powerful moment. It's a life-changing moment where some of these marriages have taken that home with them to pray and speak the will of God into their spouses' lives and pray over them. So you, as we, and the verse that came alive was, he that knows to do good and don't do it. And we think about that a lot of in the context of out there, but I, the Holy Spirit brought that to us to think of it in the context of your family. You know to do good, but yet you're tired, you're weary. But I think that a lot of times for us that maybe have walked with the Lord a long time, we maybe we think we've mastered the things we're supposed to do, but maybe the things we're leaving undone, right? So let's go back to Exodus where the high priest is being talked about. He says, he talks about these bells, the pomegranate, and the sound will be heard as he goes into the holy place before the Lord when he comes out that he may not die. So he has to do everything right. He can't go back there and be in the presence of the Lord if his fork's dirty. You shall also make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of, of, of a signet. And you shall put on it a blue cord and it may be uh, on the turban. It shall be on the front of the turban. And you shall, uh, so shall it be on Aaron's forehead that Aaron may bear the iniquity of all of the holy things which the children of Israel hallow in their holy gifts. And it shall always be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. So this guy is like a mediator. This Aaron is a mediator, a high priest. Um, they shall skillf- you shall skillfully weave the tunic of fine land. Uh, whatever we do, we ought to do it skillfully. Not haphazardly. We should do it skillfully. One of the hardest things I've done in 30 some years as a pastor is to tell somebody in my family they couldn't sing. I got in trouble, but they couldn't. That wasn't their gift. Uh... And somebody along, uh, you know, over the years I've had to deal with people who think they're called or gifted to do stuff and had to compassionately say to them, they're not. One guy had thought that he was called to preach. And people had furthered that in him. And he was... A good man. But he wasn't called to preach. And all the other preachers had just let it go. And I had to be the bad guy. He loves me like a brother. Because once that burden was off of him. That somebody had put on him. He was a different man. I didn't do it publicly. I'll never tell you whose name it was. You wouldn't know him anyway. But 
And I learned that from a preacher who said he was praying in the altar with a lady one time. And she was so distraught. She said, God has called me to the mission field. But I can't go. I've got eight children. And he said, with such skill and wisdom, he said, you're right. God has called you to the mission field. Right there it is. Those eight children. When they're grown, he may have a different assignment for you. And it was like the world come off her shoulder. Somebody laid it on her. Loaded her up with it. And she was trying to pack that around along with eight children. You talk about heavy. That'd be heavy, wouldn't it? So, you know, sometimes we have to realize what we're gifted in, what God's equipped, and what we're not gifted in. And grow through that. And he says, uh, you shall skillfully, but I like this, you shall skillfully weave the tunic. So he's telling them, David said the people that are going to play the instruments need to do it skillfully. They had to practice. David made them practice in the scripture. Aaron's sons, you shall make tunics. You shall make sashes for them. You shall make hats for them for glory and beauty. God wanted them to look good. So you shall put on them Aaron and your brother and on his sons with him. You shall anoint them, consecrate them, sanctify them that they may minister to me as priests. You shall make for them linen trousers to cover their nakedness. They shall uh, each reach from the waist uh, to, to make for them linen trousers to cover their nakedness. So he didn't want them to be exposed and they were like, uh, they didn't climb the stairs where their nakedness could be exposed. They went up, a, uh, went up a ramp. God done a lot of things for holiness purposes and to show them set apart, divine, righteous, and so that their nakedness wouldn't show. Uh, you're going to make all these for the glory and beauty of the sons. They're sanctify them, he says. Uh, you should sanctify them that they may minister to me as priests. You make them these trousers. Verse 43 says, Then shall be on Aaron and on his sons, that they shall come to the tabernacle of meeting, they shall come near the altar to minister uh, in the holy place, that they do not incur iniquity and die. So they had to come in there clean. It shall be a statue forever to him and the descendants after him. So God's brain. Now, later on, if you'll go back to Ezekiel, I think it's around 43-ish, 44, most of the priests were told they couldn't come in and minister to the Lord. Only the sons of Zadok were allowed to come before the Lord. The rest of them were told to stay out. Because the sons of Zadok were the only ones that kept God's word. And God said, the only guys that I want coming in and out before me are the sons of Zadok. The rest of them, I don't want them back in here. And it's uh, interesting how God won't eat with dirty forks and spoons either, will he? He don't eat with them either. So, uh, I was thinking about, uh, when you get over the New Testament, you know, Jesus is the high priest and he, he is seen, he bears our sin, our iniquity, our burdens, uh, cast all your cares on him for he cares for you. So this high priest was designed as a type and a shadow of the real high priest who was to come. Of course, Jesus wasn't made after the order of the earthly priesthood. He was made after the heavenly priesthood. He was after the order of Melchizedek, right? He didn't come out of the tribe of Levi. He came out of the tribe of Judah. And that was his 
earthly side. His heavenly side, of course, is God, is his father. So he, he came here to earth, took on the nature, took on flesh. And we wrestle with this a little bit in a setting. And uh, in one of the studies, I do so many of them, it's hard to keep up with. But we wrestled in one of the settings about what if Jesus' sacrifice was so great that he's confined into a body now for eternity with scars in it? What if we talk about that? The Bible says they'll look upon the one whom they pierced when he returned. What if he was so full of compassion as our high priest that he said, you know what? I'll be confined to a body with scars on it through eternity so these people can know my father. I don't know that that's proper theology, but think about his sacrifice. Think about how he took on the nature of man, took on flesh. And you see, he now is the priesthood. The priesthood runs through him. Now, they're going to get the priesthood back together. If, you read all, if you've skipped over all the genealogies, uh, we are the generation that understands why the genealogies are in there, right? Uh, people before us like, wow, now we know, right? Because they've got to identify the tribes, they, and they've been doing that. They've got to identify the priesthood and who's of the house of Aaron and all that. All that's got to be found out in the end of time as this tabernacle and temple comes back together. They got it because they're specific, right? They're not going to let uh, Joe Schmo from, no offense to Joe back there, but <laughs> Jack Smack, we'll say somebody's name that's not in here, right? They're not just going to let any Matt Robbins go in and, and minister, right? They've got to be in the line. They've got to be of the right tribe. They've got to be of the right house. So all that genealogy and stuff is in there for a reason. As Israel comes races toward the end of time like we are as Gentiles, they got to know who's, who's, who's qualified, who's in the right line to do that. So this priesthood in the New Testament takes a shift. Jesus comes in after the order of Melchizedek and he takes our sins. He takes, he bears us up on himself, up on the cross. And here comes this great high priest who not only goes before the Father to get us right with God, but instead of taking a lamb, he takes himself. Wow. He don't take the blood of an animal into the holy place in heaven. He takes his own blood. He lays his own life down. You may have heard me say this. Moses said, if you're going to kill them, he was a great intercessor, wasn't he? He said, if you're going to kill them, Lord, just kill me too. And then the, great, the greatest intercessor, and Moses was a great deliverer, or a good deliverer, but here comes the great deliverer, and Jesus takes it a step further, don't he? He says, I want you to kill me instead of them. Moses said, you kill me if you're going to kill them. Great intercessory. Right? I'm going down with them. If they're going... Moses had somehow, through all his frustrations and all his listening to their grumbling and complaining, somehow he had come to a place of loving those children, hadn't he? Those, those Israelites. 
And he said, hey, wonderful. It's powerful intercession to say, well, if you're going to take them out, just go ahead and take me out. What lessons he learned. The guy who was resisting and act like he couldn't even talk, right? I can't do this, you know. And then by the time God's through with him, he's over there saying, take me out if you're taking them out. And then he came to a place, he said, I want to be right where you're at. Show me your glory. God said, I'll have to hide you in a rock and cover you when I come by. And then he said, teach me your ways. And he come to such a place in his life that he said, if you ain't going, God, I ain't moving. More Christians need that. We think we got to be busy all the time. But we need to be like the Lord. We need to be like Moses. You would think Jesus would have got around to everybody while he was here on earth. He was in a very small circle. Just doing the will of God. Just doing the will of God. When I started hanging out with monks, before I hung out with monks and learned a little bit about them and got to know a couple of them, I thought they were weird. And some of them probably are. But so are some preachers. I got amen on that. And so are some people who sit in the pews. They're weird too, right? There's weirdos everywhere. But what I left one day when I left the monastery, I realized that God really had called some people to just be intercessors. Just pray. Just pray. What about Mother Teresa? She was heralded around the world, but you know what she did every day? She went to orphanages every day and hugged and kissed children with AIDS. And she never died from AIDS. Bill Wilson's the same way up in the Bronx. He hugs and kisses children every day with AIDS. He's been shot in the face and he just stays right there in the Bronx in obscurity but we don't have to be busy all the time we just need to be in tune with the Holy Spirit and sometime he might say why don't you come over here and sit under this tree for a few hours I want to commune with you so I realize that everybody don't have to be like me that's one of the first things you got to get over as a Christian. Everybody don't have to do what you do. If we all did the same thing, that's why we have several mission outlets in this church and people have hearts for different things. What if everybody had the same heart for one person? Then those other, the rest of those mission outlets wouldn't get any blessings through us, Right? Everybody has a heart for different things. God puts us together for a reason. And so we all can't have the same burdens. If we all had the same burden, we'd get one thing done. And that's, that's how God brings us together, right? So the high priest, he's, he's a picture of Christ. Chapter 29 uh, let me read just a little bit. It says, And this is what you shall do to them. Hallow them for ministering to me as priests. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil. You shall make them of wheat and flour. You shall put them in a basket and bring them in the basket 
with the bull and the two rams. And Aaron and his sons you shall bring to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. You shall wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments, put the tunic on Aaron, the robe on the ephod, an ephod on the breastplate, gird him with intricately woven band of ephod. You shall put the turban on his head, put the holy crown on the turban, and you shall take the anointing oil, pour it on his head, anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons, put tunics on them, and you shall gird them with sashes and Aaron and his sons and put the hats on them. The priesthood shall be theirs for a perpetual statue. So you shall consecrate Aaron and his sons. So they wanted them clean. They wanted them set apart. And that's what God wants us as, as New Testament believers. Come out from among the world and be separate. That's what he's asked of us. There should be a difference in how we conduct our lives and how the world conducts their lives. I told you a story about my mom sharing that with me years ago. Impacted my life. I'm going to tell you another situation that impacted my life. And this has to do with being right. Doing the right thing. The first test I ever took in, in graduate work. <clears throat> I was in a class, a Greek class, taking Greek language. The professor, we get, took a test. Then he said, take out your book, grade your own paper. You imagine that happening at UK? After we got through grading the paper, then he looked at us all solemnly and he said, if you didn't grade your paper correctly, he said, I'm going to open this door. You need to leave this class. You do not need to be in the ministry if you cheated Great in your own test. That's powerful, isn't it? I thought, man, you know what you're doing. The greatest test for the preacher is not how many Greek words he knows, but whether or not he's going to live in integrity or not. And that's not just for preachers, that's for Christians. He said, if you graded your test incorrectly, you need to leave this school. Ministry's not for you. Wow. Man, that was a powerful moment in everybody in that classroom's life. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for what all of it means to us. Thank you for the priesthood. Thank you for forgiving us of our sins. None of us are perfect. But what life lessons we can learn as we study your word and how they bring us into a place of being conformed into your image. Let your son be real in us. Come Holy Spirit, invade our lives, clean us up, and make us, conform us into the image of your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.